Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have an amazing host. He is actually a much better host than I. Uh, somebody who is doing so much great work from NPR and all things considered. And now I can just tell you his new book is so powerful. We're going to get into that. But Ari Shapiro, how are you today, man? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Bakari. I'm glad you're here. So what I would like to do is our, our show is unique in that we ask all of our guests the same first question, which is to walk us through the arc of your career. How did we get, how did you get to the point where we all know your name now for all of us who listen and uh, appreciate the work you do, but how did you get to that point in your career? Well, there's a, a simple short answer, which is I started as an intern at NPR and never left and have just <laughs> stuck around my entire life. So that and worked then, for people listening. It worked. Internships work. Yes. <laughs> but the slightly longer answer is that I never planned to be a journalist. I never planned to be a host of All Things Considered. I kind of followed my curiosity and kept challenging myself and kept asking, what's next? How can I grow? How can I continue to learn? And that always led to new opportunities within NPR, you know, some of which didn't work out. I think it's important to know, especially when you're talking to people who are public figures, about moments that people got rejected for jobs, moments that people failed at something they set out to do. But ultimately, it was just through kind of taking one step after another after another without a real sense of where I was going to be in a year or five years that I that I wound up where I am now. Well, What's it like over there at NPR? I mean, you, you guys do a different type of, it's just pure journalism at NPR and you share those stories. Talk about that environment in this culture where you have misinformation and disinformation coming. And I would say that NPR and probably BBC are the purest forms of uh, the consumption of news media. One of the things that, that is I, the biggest compliment I can. I, I, I appreciate that so much. I do not take that for granted. And I was a listener before I was an employee. I mean, when I was in high school, I actually volunteered answering phones in Portland, Oregon during a pledge drive for OPB. So like, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was that kid. Um, but what being a public broadcast news source means is that when we sit at the editorial meeting every morning planning what's going to be on the show that day, we are only answerable to our audience. We are only thinking about how we can best reflect what is happening in the world and help make our audience more informed participants in a democracy. And that means not just talking about politics and war and business, but also the full range of things that make up a life. And that's what I love so much about hosting All Things Considered. And also what I tried to capture in this book is that like, for me, being a journalist is about more than just talking to people on their worst day after a natural disaster or a mass shooting. That's a part of it. But so is celebrating, you know, the the joy of life, the creativity, the arts, the experience of being in a family, of being in a community. Like those are as much a part of what we want to reflect as the sort of big headline front page news things. Yeah. And you guys do it extremely well. Adding author to your bio now. I mean, I got a, I just got a personal question for you first. How the hell did you convince Harper to let you put your picture on the front? <laughs> <laughs> like, let's, let's, before we uh, get to the, the, the more serious questions, uh, the well, meaningful questions, because I tried to put my picture on the front of the book and feel like, yeah, no, put a baby. You're a good looking guy. I don't I, know what they were thinking. I thought so, but it didn't work. <laughs> so they said to me, we want images of you doing your job. And they weren't sure like what the final outcome was going to be. But 
I often travel with professional photographers because we do digital versions of our stories on NPR.org. So I have a bunch of professional photos of me doing my job. And I sent them a bunch of those. And then as an afterthought, I said, you know, here's an iPhone photo that my producer Kat Lonsdorf took of me in the back of a pickup truck. And it's probably a little bit too much like Cormac McCarthy, you know, like, or Jack Kerouac, like just throwing it in the mix. (laughs) And some weeks later, they were like, here's your cover design. And sure enough, it was me in the back of a pickup truck. But what I like about it is that in the background, there are these mountains that to me really feel like they could be anywhere in the world. They happen to have been in Malibu, uh, the story I was covering That's at the time. Malibu? That's Malibu. It was, oh, it was wildfire. You were like in Wyoming. That's or, the thing. Or it could be Iraq um, or Afghanistan. Like it could yeah. truly be anywhere. But we were covering the wildfires that had torn through Southern California. And we were driving with this guy out to see his demolished property in the back of his pickup truck. I think I come off on the cover looking much more butch than I am in real life. But, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend to be something I'm not. <laughs> well, you you look you look extremely good. I don't know what the hell you're Thank you very much. There's a lot of like toning, color like, toning, staring filters. out into the distance. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that is. So let's talk about it. Let's let's dig into it a little bit. The best strangers in the world stories from a life spent listening. Hell of a title. A lot of words. Talk to me about the title. Thank you. The title actually comes from a work of art that has been hanging in my house for many years. My friend Cassidy Duhan created the work of art and it the 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 art piece actually says the best strangers in the world live here, but I I zeroed in on that idea of the best strangers in the world because as a journalist, we have these very unusual experiences where we meet people in incredibly vulnerable moments. And we ask them to talk with us about things that they might not talk with many people about. And we have a moment of connection and intimacy that I think is real, but it may only last five or 15 minutes or an hour. And then we may never see those people again. And so I think about all of the people who have shared their stories with me, who have had those connections with me, who have been willing to enter into that relationship of listening and and confiding and sharing. And I feel so appreciative of and grateful for them and how they have taught me and shaped me and changed me. And, and so I like that the, the title of the book centers them collectively. Let me ask you this question. And it's further down on my list of questions for you, but you, you prompted it sooner um, in this kind of natural conversation, but I, I, I've asked Cicely Tyson this question. I've asked every author that I've ever. Oh, I'm in good company then. All right. Good company. Well, what did you learn about yourself while you were writing this? That's a great question. Um, you know, before I started writing the book, I thought of the things that I do in my life as sort of scattershot, different facets of myself. You know, I sing with this band called Pink Martini. I created a cabaret show with Alan Cumming and we tour the country with that. Of course, I'm a journalist with NPR. And now I can add author to that. But they all felt like very different things. And over the course of writing this, I realized that they actually have so much more in common, which is they are all about creating connections, helping people better understand the world. And maybe if I'm doing my job well, allowing somebody to see the world through the eyes of someone else. And so whether I'm, you know, singing in Arabic in the US or a foreign country with Pink Martini or telling ridiculous jokes with Alan Cumming, or reporting from a war zone or a presidential campaign, ultimately what I'm trying to do is 
build a bridge across chasms of difference and help people understand that what they perceive as being other actually has much more in common with their own experience than they might realize. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. One of the difficult things in terms of writing that I noticed about your book is that you you center others' voices while not shying away from sharing your personal story. How did you find that blend? That was the big shift for me because, you know, as a journalist, it's never supposed to be about you. Like I've spent my life pointing the microphone at others. And so pointing it back at myself and thinking, well, how did that make me feel? How did that shape the person I am? How did the person that I am shape the story that I told? That was new for me. And it felt like starting a new you know, workout and discovering muscle groups that I didn't know I had. Um, and it involved editing and revising and rewriting and setting stuff aside for a little while and then coming back to it. Because obviously it's a memoir, it's supposed to be about me, but I think of this in part as a memoir told through the stories of others. It's a book about the stories that have shaped my life and on the flip side, the way my history and identity shapes the stories that I've told. Talk about that identity a little bit. You know, growing up uh, a gay kid in uh, North Dakota, I was about to call the wrong Dakota, which <laughs> it might be offensive. Sorry, right. I haven't uh, been back since I was eight. So my uh, affinity. So, yeah, I lived till I was eight in Fargo and then moved to Portland, Oregon. And, you know, when I was in first grade, I was well, my brother and I were the only Jewish kids in our elementary school. And so we would. That's, that's so hard to believe. I mean, we kept kosher in Fargo. Like we got our meat delivered, our kosher meat delivered on a freezer truck once a month from Chicago that would pull into the synagogue parking lot. So, you know, as a first grader in Fargo, I'm going from classroom to classroom every December with a menorah and a dreidel telling kids what Hanukkah is. And then you fast forward to when I'm a teenager in Portland, Oregon, at the age of 16, I came out of the closet and I was the only out gay kid at my school. And so again, I'm kind of trying to help people understand something that is unfamiliar to them. And what I realized as a journalist is that I can do the same thing, be an ambassador, help create understanding with groups that I have no personal connection to beyond my journalistic interest in them. And so I can go to coastal Senegal and talk to people whose homes are being swallowed by rising seas. I can go to a you know, bikers for Trump rally and talk to people about their political feelings. And I can bring that to listeners where they are and help them understand somebody who they might perceive as being really different from them. That's interesting. But it's but you have been on both sides of the story before, have you not? You yeah. have been you have also been the story. 
And so talk about that when you were getting married um, with Gavin Newsom, of course, and just unwittingly uh, that you we're going to have to edit that. You were not marrying Gavin Newsom. but I was not marrying Gavin Newsom. Uh, I was marrying my college boyfriend, who I'm still married to, Mike Gottlieb. Oh, I, definitely. A handsome couple. Oh, um, thank you. So, yeah, you are by far the most attractive, but handsome couple. <laughs> That's why I'm on the radio. I don't have to worry about that. But talk about how you became the story and what well, that means for you when you lose. When you're as a journalist, when you see yourself become the story, you talked about that writing, but you you'd been there before. Yeah. Although kind of not putting yourself there, it was taken from you. Mm -hmm. It was 2004. So I was just starting as a journalist and same sex marriage was only just beginning in the U.S. and um, was a huge controversy. Like there was a lot of political debate over it. There were a lot of strong feelings about it. And Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco and just decided he was going to start doing same-sex weddings. And that's where Mike grew up. And so he said, it's my hometown. I want to do this. And I said, okay, let's do it. But also, I thought, like, as a journalist, I'm supposed to be telling the story, not in the story. So I actually asked my boss for permission to get married. To her credit, she said, of course, yes, go get married. I said, I will leave my NPR tote bag at home and keep a low profile. And so, you know, I'm standing there you on the all steps of, of City Hall. You just completely fucked all of that up. I just want oh, to. absolutely. <laughs> so, like, as we're exchanging our vows on the steps of City Hall with our parents there and, you know, the guy who was performing our marriage, somebody we'd never met before, was, like, uh, deputized after he married his now husband, who he'd been with since before the Stonewall riots of 1969. So it felt like this huge cultural, significant, historical moment. And we did not notice the TV camera over our shoulder. And it was only that night that somebody told us the local NBC affiliate in San Francisco used the footage of our marriage in their story about the same-sex marriage controversy. But they didn't interview us. They didn't have our names. I thought, okay, like that'll pass. Nobody will notice. Then the footage got picked up by the NBC Nightly News and MSNBC and CNBC. And so basically any time any NBC affiliate was doing a story about same-sex marriage, Mike and I exchanging our vows was the footage that was used. And that went on for five years until finally I was um, NPR's justice correspondent covering legal affairs. And I got a call from the NBC News justice correspondent, Pete Williams, who said, Hey, Ari, I think you are in the B-roll for our same-sex marriage story tonight. And I said, yeah, that's me. And I explained it to him. And I said, I'm ready to pass the TR to someone else. <laughs> and so that is how my reign as the face of same-sex marriage on NBC News came to an end. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, 
you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right. One of the questions that I just got to ask you is about uh, this band. I mean, you just yeah. got to be able to explain this to folk. I mean, what Pink Martini is, mm-hmm. first of all, an amazing... But, what flavor is a pink martini? How did you, I mean, talk to me about, what is that? Strawberry red, red. The name came about in the 90s when there was sort of like retro cocktail culture at its peak. And um, the band leader, Thomas Lauderdale, who's the pianist, has told me in his more candid mo- moments that if he knew the band was going to stick around for 30 years, if he knew the band was going to be this international success, he might have thought a little more carefully about the name. But it is called Pink Martini. And well, it's what, like a what, little what orchestra. What, tell me, talk to me about we very rarely see people able to be themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Journalists, we we have this image of them. They do their work. They feed us the news. Very rarely do you see Wolf Blitzer singing Sweet Caroline like he was. Uh, <laughs> have you at, seen that? I was there. At the, yes, at the <laughs> DNC convention, we had one of our nights out. So, like, talk to me about how you're able to be yourself and what part of that is Pink Martini. Well... Pink Martini, it's a like a little orchestra of more than a dozen people and they tour the world. We tour the world, I should say. And now for more than a dozen years, I've been a sort of regular guest singer with them. And I've recorded a song on each of their last few albums. And when I started doing it, I really thought, oh, well, this is the end of me being taken seriously as a journalist. People are going to hear I sang with this band and I'm never going to get an interview with the president of the United States or whatever. And of course, that's nonsense. And of course, I now realize that these are all pieces of who I am. But as satisfying as it is to do a radio story that lands, it does not compare to being in a room with hundreds or thousands of people and hearing in real time their reaction to what they are hearing you do. Because like right now, you and I are talking and I don't know whether dozens, hundreds, thousands or millions of people are listening to it, but it's you and me having a conversation. And that's what being a radio journalist feels like. And so when you step on stage at the Hollywood Bowl, which is the first place I ever performed with Pink Martini, and 17,000 people are cheering you on, there's nothing like it. It is just a wave of energy that I, I, I've... It's addictive and it's uplifting and it's a, it's a glorious experience because it never will happen again in exactly that way. Um, Todd, one of the last questions I have for you, tell me what you want readers to get from this book. A sense of optimism. You know, um, my friends. That's that's hard today. That's why. That's why. Right. Because you listen to the news and you hear stories of all the terrible things happening in the world. Friends always ask me, like, how do you stay optimistic given everything that's going on? And the answer is in these pages. Like, these are the people who keep me optimistic. These are the people who give me hope. These are the people who remind me that it's to, to give up is not a luxury that we can afford. Man, I mean, that's decently profound. I have a lot of friends who write books. That's like the new thing to do. 
Uh, very few of them. It's also an old thing. Yeah, I've yeah, been saying. doing it for a minute. <laughs> but it's all, uh, not uh, what I, where I was going with that is that not all books are good books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even if your friends write them, your book was very, very, very well done. Tell Thank people you so much. Quality. What do you have? What do you have next on your horizon? Any new albums? Any new? Specials? Yeah. I mean, so I, uh, as I mentioned, Alan Cumming and I do this show together, and we're going to be doing it in New York for two weeks at the Cafe Carlisle. Also, I am going to be on an eleven city book tour all across the country, DC, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, LA, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, Minneapolis, Dallas. And so I really hope I can see people out in the world. I'm so jealous. I'm talking about this COVID. I miss ah, I'm not sorry right here in front of my laptop. Oh, mm. But, and, yeah. and how can people follow you on your social oh, media? Yeah, I'm at Ari Shapiro on Instagram and Twitter. And my website is Ari Shapiro.org. I love you, Ari Shapiro. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Good book. You too. Good book. Thanks.